0: How's it going, everyone? Uh, tonight's special guest is Richard Norton, a world-renowned martial artist, Hall of Famer, numerous black belts in different disciplines, actor, stuntman, just an incredible individual. I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Thank you. So I was going through, with this whole quarantine going off, I'm going through all my old DVDs and VHSs, and I start coming across the Octagon, and then I actually watch it, and then Chad O'Brien, and I'm like, man, this guy is so cool. Like I kind of never, as with work on, you kind of lose sight of what people end up doing if you like follow growing up. And so I'm looking at your stuff you've been doing, everything from the instructing to the stunt double. Like I know it stunt doubling and action stuff. I know what you're about, the Fury Road. And I start going down your catalog with everything. And then I'm like, man, this guy was a bodyguard too. I start seeing these old pictures with you, with ABBA, and Stevie Dix, you've got like this Pepsi t shirt on with like these
1: suspenders <laughs> the on, long blonde hair, all oh, natural, like, boy. the way.
0: Is such, <laughs> this guy is such a cool story to tell. And so that's kind of what I reached out. I definitely have some questions for you. And I think you have a very fascinating career, and what you're still doing is amazing. Um, so, yeah. what, how, what do you recommend for people for their mental health? or what are you kind of doing? if gyms are closed, or how do you kind of, what would your advice be towards people that want to help to kind of clear, keep their head clear, but stay physically active and stuff like that?
1: You know, it, it's, it's sometimes a little diff, uh, difficult for me to answer that without sounding a little selfish and meaning that I, I have friends, obviously, that run martial arts schools that are shuttered up. You know, people with businesses, coffee shops that I know, and, and they're doing it hard as, as people that have lost their jobs. So I get that. Um, it is what it is, as I said, it's not like anyone chose this, you know, the virus is its own right. sort of thing, there's borders, as they say, it's not democratic, it's not Republican, it, it is what it is, and I, you know, so I, I feel for that. For me personally, I'm actually enjoying the downtime, you know, I was in Atlanta, Georgia for seven months, working on the latest Suicide Squad movie with James Gunn, awesome. we But when you do that, you're pretty much working 14-hour days. So it's a bit of a slog. So I was looking forward to coming home. I would have been already on another movie for the last two months had this not happened and had stuff not been uh, kind of locked down. But I I do say that when I was leaving Atlanta, I was very much looking forward to the chance of having downtime. So for me, it's all good. My wife and I, we're at the stage, and I've been around a lot longer than I'm, and most, you know, I'm 70 years of age now. So for me, the idea of being at home is just a luxury. You know, I I've had a chance to just do so much reading and research, have video clips, stuff that I've been meaning to do for so many years, but because you're always out and about and elsewhere, you never give you a chance to ch- yourself a chance to actually do that. So I'm taking that opportunity and very, very much enjoying it, of course, None of us hope this is going to last forever, and it won't. It it will pass. Everything passes. Um, so I, I just, for me, I, I always try and look at the upside. I say to people, there's got to be an upside to everything. If you only look at the negative, then, of course, you're going to find stuff to moan and groan about. And I, I always look at there's got to be something positive. You know, one of Judy, one of my wife's, I say gurus. I kind of laugh with her a bit, anyway. But this gentleman she listened to a lot, as he said, you know, a lot of people they they're working nine to fives. They kind of hate their jobs, and all they're wishing for is when they get to retire, get some time off, get to actually spend time at home with family, with friends, with loved ones, and enjoy that particular or very special sort of moment. Well, as he would say, careful what you wish for, because now you have that opportunity. <clears throat> Notwithstanding again, people that are alone and don't have that sort of family relationship. Again, I understand that, but try and look for the upside. I, I exercise at home, uh, albeit at home. I'm not as I'm not as hard at it as I would. I like to go to a gym. I like to go to an academy or a dojo. I like to go because I know I'm there for a particular reason. It's harder for me at home, but again, you can go. Oh, gee, woe is me. But no, get off your bum. Do some push-ups and squats and free weight exercises and everything else and at least maintain so when everything does open up you won't be starting from scratch and that includes martial arts there's so much training we do in martial arts that we can do solo um so you know i would just again just try and look at the upside and, and understand it will pass well that's awesome you kind of did just mentioned
0: the idea you've been working on your kind of social media posting old pictures and one of the pictures you posted recently was a picture of you uh, in a Pepsi shirt, bell bottoms uh, with, I believe, Abba or Stevie Dicks. So I guess my question for you is as those artists, assuming that was taken in Australia, how did you get into that work? Uh, did they come to you? What was your first gig like? And how did your training help you with your job when you did that stuff?
1: So, My history in martial arts is, and you know, this is sort of out there, I started judo when I was 11. I started karate when I was in my mid-teens, goju, Japanese system. And by the time I was 20, uh, a friend of mine who was 10 years older than me, Bob Jones, who was also studying goju, wanted me to go with him and open up our own martial arts system, which by the way, was quite groundbreaking back, you know, this is 1970. In Australia, it was a bit like America used to be where, you know, you had schools with Shotokan or Goju or Kyokushin or whatever. And it was quite blinkers on and you didn't really mix styles and particularly it was frowned on to sort of start your own system. So Bob was very much ahead of his time in that regard. And one of the reasons he wanted to start this system and it was called Zendokai, It's now BJMA, as in Bob Jones Martial Arts. But when we started it together, Bob had already been, he was very, very well known in the security world, ran a security for all the clubs and pubs, bars in Melbourne back in the late 60s, and of course into the 70s. So what Bob wanted was a style that would incorporate a bit of the mixing of the martial arts. In other words, this is long before the UFC or anything else. And long before MMA, as in mixing martial arts, became kind of the, the environment. So we, we had a system that was based on Japanese goju, but we would incorporate boxing, wrestling, and basically a lot of things that pertain to the reality-based world, as we call it now. Because the majority of our students that joined up, and by the way, we had a couple hundred students right off the bat, they were mostly doormen or bouncers or security people. So their interest was not so much in the traditional arts as it was in, will this work on the door or in a bar or a club or something that I happened to be working at. And that was, that was a lot of the core of the system. Albeit, again, we still had the protocols of a traditional system. We still wore gear. We still bowed and we showed the etiquette of a traditional martial art. So that was my start. So I went with Bob in 1970 to begin that. We did some pop concerts in the late teens. I was already working doors uh, in Melbourne. (laughs) I I always laugh because it dates me when I call them discotheques, but that's what they were, uh, discos. But it was a really pretty rough and tough time back then. You know, we always used to joke with, Aussies with Australians, you know, if they went out and got into a fight and got drunk, that was a good night. And if you happened to meet a nice young lady, that was a bonus, but it wasn't completely necessary to having a good time. So it was a pretty, pretty rough and tough time on the doors. Um, so in 1972, I would say, or late, early three, we had a gentleman named Paul Dainty, who was an Australian entrepreneur who used to bring all the top Bands out to Australia. He rang Bob and asked if we would be interested in looking after the Rolling Stones, and of course Bob accepted that. So he and I ended up on tour with the Stones, and this was a, just a little while after Altamont, where the uh, situation yep. with the Hell's Angel becoming a fan. So it was a pretty, pretty iffy time, even for the Stones. They're uh, very, very paranoid about security and everything. But that was my first job as a personal bodyguard. Which then led on to a whole sway, you know. I think you know, just roughly, I worked with Joe Cocker, uh, Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks, David Bowie for eight years, Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor for 14 years, um, ABBA, Swedish pop group. So, you know, and that, that started in Australia all the way up until 1979. I moved to the States and then continued to work with Linda and James and David. So that kept me going. So that's really how it started was through this Australian, you know, entrepreneur promoter Paul Dainty that got us going into that. And you ask how I get the work? Well, really, what it was about in that sort of a job was about word of mouth. In other words, if if you were working with the Rolling Stones or you happened to work with Fleetwood Mac, that already meant you were okay. You know the people's eyes or promoters eyes the fact that these bands were using you meant you were the real deal so it wasn't so much about sending in a resume and a list of your accomplishments and everything it just didn't work that way because one of the big things that that the managers and of course the bands themselves were after was that they could trust somebody that was that closely you know um linked to the band i mean i had a adjoining room all the acts everywhere I went, of course, as did Bob. So, you know, we were privy to just about everything that went on. So, to f- again, to have, to have something like working with the Stones or, or whoever, or Joe Cocker, it automatically meant, again, you were okay. You know, that, oh. that you could be trusted in that environment and not do a kiss-and-tell article every week about all your exploits on the road.
0: Were you able to trade as much as you'd like on the road? Or were there any other acts that you worked with that you could actually trade with, whether it was sparring or
1: rolling around the mat or even just working? A lot of times I was up at like four in the morning after a gig with the Stones teaching Mick Jagger karate, you know, in the lobby outside the (laughs) hotel rooms. He was intrigued. What people don't know about people like like Mick, If, if you watch him even today, and the guy's close to 80, the energy he has and his fitness level to do hours on that stage prancing around like he does is amazing well think about back in you know um, the early 70s I mean he was very aware of the shape he needed to be in of course he's you know he's very slim very slight which helped so he loved the idea of karate so I'd give him a few lessons with Stevie Stevie Nicks loved to do it again after often after a show which by the way, it wasn't always easy because sometimes three in the morning, I'd be in a hotel suite, you know, giving her leg raises and abdominal work and everything else. Linda Ronstadt and James, I trained them as probably as hard as I train any brown belt. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, hitting the bag and doing all sorts of stretches and martial arts exercises and they loved it. And so there was a good opportunity for me, not just to be bodyguard, but almost to be a friend and somebody that could actually help them get go off the road in better shape than when they went on. In fact, Rolling Stone magazine once did an article on me because they were intrigued about hearing about some of these bands or rock and rollers coming off the road again in better shape than when they started, which was almost unheard of. And, and so that was, that was kind of a bit of fun. And even David Bowie, when I started with David, one of the first things he did is he challenged me to a one-arm push-up competition in a restaurant. And that was pretty funny because he also was in, in very, very good shape. But again, they were there, a lot of them were aware that it, that it wasn't about, it, it was about being able to get through a concert night after night after night and be in reasonable physical shape. Like James, even with James, I, I would set up a punching bag for James uh, before it went on. And a lot of the gigs have been became part of the thing just before he went on stage. So he could hit the bag and basically get rid of a bit of excess adrenaline. And uh, he enjoyed it. I, I would go to Martha's Vineyard sometimes in the off days and train him in Japanese bow and a few things and hang out. They were the Daisy when he was married to uh, Carly Simon. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of involvement from the band. Some of them you wouldn't get. Some of them, no matter what happened, they're, they're not going to get out there. But... To a certain degree, there's quite a few that really embraced the idea of getting in a bit of shape on the road and balancing the hard life of going from city to city, tour bus after tour bus, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a good time.
0: That's a great story. Um, Um, As you kind of started transitioning to movies, was there ever a sense of, I mean, you're working with Bay the Jet. Cynthia Rothrock, Chuck Doris, Superfoot, all these legends. As you're kind of transitioning to that, working with these, these incredible athletes, or, was there ever a sense of, uh, yeah, of course there's pride, but was there ever any jealousy? Or was there ever any, like, someone you worked with where they were just, like, trying to make you look? Like, I'm always kind of curious, because you had so many good, like, incredible personalities, martial artists. Did you ever have any times where you're kind of like, man, this guy pushed me more, or she pushed me more, or... I can't work with that guy because he's trying to hurt me or you guys all in it to be on the same team
1: you mean as martial artists
0: as martial arts but yeah, in the sense of when it came to filming i'm sure there's a lot of ego uh, when it came to like who was playing the good guy the oh, bad guy type stuff
1: right no i i got you no no not really but look i'm sure there were probably oh, look who doesn't everybody's got a little bit of an ego and I imagine, you know, it it sometimes would get down to who has the most screen time and everything, but I was not aware of that with anybody I worked with. Like Cynthia and I, you know, we did nine movies together and I I was in Hong Kong working on my first uh, movie with Jackie Chan and and, uh, Summer Hong called Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars. And I'd heard about this blonde, blue-eyed American working in Hong Kong. I didn't know her then. Follow on, we get both get cast in Shanghai Express or Millionaire's Express, depending on the name, wherever the country you are. But we ended up working on that. We, we just established an immediate friendship. And I think being Guilos in Hong Kong, being, being the two white people, we, we were very supportive of each other and realized you know, that if we banded together, it would be great. We also though had terrific support from Jackie, from Jackie Chan, Sammo, oh, Yin Bill, They couldn't have been nicer to us and helpful, and especially in trying to help us understand a Hong Kong style of movie making. And then, you know, back in the States, uh, Cynthia and I did China O'Brien one and two, Rage and Honor one and two, Lady Dragon. We did a lot of movies. Like Lady Dragon, I got the crap beaten out of me by Cynthia, you know? (laughs) But I'm completely okay with that because guess what? You get a script and you read your character and it says you're the bad guy and you get beaten up. Don't complain, if you're gonna complain, don't take your job. And, and Jackie right. even nicely said that about me once, he said, I like Richard Norton because a lot of people say, oh, I'm too strong, I can't lose the fight. And he said Richard was always, he understood it's a movie, it's just a character, you know, and I, that didn't concern me. I was, I was pretty comfortable in my own skin, so it didn't certainly didn't affect me in that way. By the way, it, it, it's also healthy competition, to have somebody that is that skilled, whether it's a Benny or a Cynthia or whatever, and for you to competitively have to lift your game to match this skill set. But that's a healthy... That's a healthy...
0: As you... It, how did you become involved with the stunt work? Is that something where you, got, as you got older and you gained more knowledge, you could kind of help other actors try to pull off these crazy stunts? Or is this something where it's kind of... Like, like, how did you know stunt work is something? Because the movies you're working on now are just incredible. And like Fury Road, I'm watching, I'm like, the men and women that do stunt work is so incredible. And I'm always just kind of curious, how did you get into that?
1: I, you know, it was a natural uh, progression for me because in the early, you know, with the 80s and 90s with the movies, that we did meet, we meaning whether it's a Don Wilson, Cynthia, myself, any. You didn't have stunt doubles. You did all your own stuff. Right. You know? So you got the knock, especially Hong Kong. I mean, the, the contact in those fight scenes was excessive, to say the least. So if you weren't <laughs> fit, and you take that, and and remember that you know, in a lot of those films, when you see maybe me getting smacked in the jaw with an uppercut or kicked against a wall, you as the audience only get to see it once. We would shoot right. sometimes 30 takes to get that right. And we're doing 18 hours a day, seven days a week, a lot of the time. I mean, it was grueling. So the fact that we had to do it all, and a lot of times, not so much Hong Kong, but other movies, choreograph your own stuff. You're already kind of a stunt person, even though right. you were the actor you're a, you're an actor who did their own stunts. So the progression for me was just to end up like, Guy Norris is a really close friend of mine that I've been with for, I don't think over, well, I started working with Guy in the early 90s on a film called Salute of the Jugger or Blood of Heroes, a Rutger Hauer movie. People remember oh, Rutger from, um, you know, so many amazing, amazing movies. and. I uh, So I started working with Guy there as an actor, sort of stunt character. So we became good friends. And most of the work I got or do get now as a fight coordinator, it's not so much stunt coordinator, though I did stunt coordinating in uh, Lithuania. I was second unit director and stunt coordinator on a, on a weird Warner Brothers show called The New Adventures of Robin Hood. Um, where I got to actually direct drama as well as uh, film and, and direct action scenes. So again, I'm adding that because that added to my experience at bank and my abilities. But I, I, the last five years, you know, through Guy, Guy always works as the second unit director, supervising stunt coordinator. And he hires me mainly as fight coordinator. So the, the past five years I did, what did we start with, Mad Max, Fury Road, did Ghost and the Shell, yep. Scarlett Johansson, um, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Triple Frontier, which is a Ben Affleck movie, and Charlie Hunnam. And of course now just finished um, Suicide Squad, uh, you know, another version of Suicide Squad. And we're going on to another Mad Max movie, hopefully the beginning next year. That's all been as a fight coordinator. Though I did act, you know, I had a role in Mad Max Fury Road and sometimes I get roles, but it's, it, i got to be honest with you, you know, it, when you get to my age, you kind of, I, I laugh, I say, you're probably going to at this age play somebody's dad or an aging gangster. Right. right which, you know, because, you know, action films, I get it, they, they want the 30 year old running around, you know, and having all the love scenes and everything and I've been through all of that, so. So I'm very comfortable with the idea of that. So as a long-winded answer uh, to your question, it's just due to all the drama I did in action movies. There was a combination of drama and action that I learned so much about the industry, being a movie set and putting things together and making them work for camera. And that's what I bring to the picture now, like I think I think I feel a rapport I get like with a Margot Robbie or John Cena or or whoever, you know, or Scarlett Johansson, you know, I'd often train them for a couple of months before we start shooting. And they understood that I understood drama. Now, sure, smaller movies in comparison. I did understand drama. And what I would often bring to it is... I would say what's important is what you're not doing as much as what you are doing in a fight, the emotional uh, journey, the drama, where did you come from? Why did the fight start? The intent I talk about, you know, when somebody fights, you know, do I believe it? And all of this stuff I bring aside from the physical action, I think just, just makes a really nice sort of um, working environment for a lot of these, these excellent actors that I get to work with. And again, it's all about economics at this stage of the game. Number one, I'm still working at this age. I'm still getting paid to it. And best of all, it's involving my martial arts, which has been my life's passion. All I ever wanted to do with my life was be the best martial artist I could be. Everything good in my life has happened as a result of that. 25 years on the road, all over the world with the best rock and roll bands of the time, and now 40 years in the movie industry. So... Not much to complain about there. And so whatever the work is in the industry that keeps me utilizing my martial arts and passing on whatever abilities I can, uh, I'm a happy little camper. Has there been a
0: stunt where even you were kind of like, ah, I can't do that? Or what's the craziest stunt you've been involved with?
1: No, no. And again, just to be quite upfront, I, I wouldn't do, though I have done smaller high falls and things like that. But, you know, getting back to the first film that I worked with was Chuck Norris's Octagon. We shot that in 1979. If you remember, I I played well. There was four of us, including yep. Chuck's brother, Aaron, that we played all the ninja roles throughout. So we did most of the fights with Chuck because we are all dressed in black costumes. As Keo, <laughs> at the end of the fight with the Sai and the sword, you know, he sidekicks me through a wall of... of wall it's on fire and then keo comes back through the wall screaming with his sword and gets cut down well i of course did not do that full fire burn back then you had to have an oxygen tank there are tubes inside a reasonable costume it's very different now they use gels and everything you don't need that apparatus but i also was made to understand how dangerous something like that was so said, no, I'm going to leave that to professionals. So still to this day with my career, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, like I can drive, but that's not my gig, you know, doing ridiculous car stunts and rolling cars is not my thing, or, or doing fire burns. So I'm realistic about where I'm at. My stuff is more feet on the ground, fight stuff, choreographing, and of course there's wire work and everything in so many of these movies, but, but that's what it is. So the most dangerous things I would do, but we always laugh, is if especially in the Philippines, you know, where I'm the lead and I would come up with the most ridiculous sort of things like jumping on a bonnet of a Mustang that O-Star is driving, you know, at not so fast, 30 miles an hour in a what quarry. I had this idea, well, I'll jump out in the bonnet now. I want you to pull a handbrake on and spin the car a bit and I'll be shooting at the vehicles behind. And this was out even knowing how to set that up, you know, so off we'd go and I got pitched like, you know. 40 bloody feet you know under my head and you go oh, okay that didn't work so well gee maybe I need to strap myself down somehow and and or or one time I was doing a thing over a waterfall I had this idea there was a cable over this waterfall it was probably 100 feet down to rocks and all sorts of stuff and said to the director oh, let's put a cable and I'll just attach myself to the cable and shoot while I'm sliding down this cable over this bloody waterfall and again there was nobody there that had the expertise on how to even rig that I had a military belt that I just hooked over the cable and I just put my elbow through and hung onto it and I've got an AK-47 and off I go without thinking well if I got stuck in the middle there's no way I could be pulled back or down there's nothing pads if I drop that's the end of me we would do things like that you know and it was so much fun but on hindsight very dangerous um explosions you know i jumped off a truck in the philippines and they had three huts full of and and not not the kind of safe explosions you use these days but they were just bags of petrol you know with a cable to a to a battery and a special effects guy sort of press a button and off they would go and I remember this day, the, this military truck driving. The cameras, like on one side of the truck, you know, over here, here's the truck and here's the huts. And the special effects guy couldn't see where I was, so all he was looking at the truck. And as the truck goes through, I jumped out of this truck that's moving a, a good click, and I fell flat on my face. And I remember thinking, is, "Oh shit, I got to just get up and start running." And I get up, and as I start. These pots go up, petrols going everywhere, fire and flame, and I could feel this whoosh in my back. But I knew I had to keep running. And at the day, you know, on the day, you think, "Oh, how much fun was that?" In hindsight, you go, "Well, how stupid was that?" You know, I could have, I could have been killed at any time. But still, again, this is—it's all those experiences of that up along with Hong Kong, working in Hong Kong and looking at people and how someone like Jackie and the amazing Samma Hung put fights together choreographed and shoot them, you can't get a better classroom than that. Right. So flip forward to today, it's all that experience that I try and bring, you know, to movies that I'm involved in, in whichever way I can. Understanding that it's a collective thing, you know, a guy has his input, the director has his input. You know, there's a lot of people, a a group of amazing stunt people that are involved. So it's a very collaborative process that ends up with whatever result you see on screen.
0: As an instructor and a teacher and everything with all that, is is there a, say if you're teaching a military person or a police officer or a student or a female or a, a security guy who wants to get into business, how do you, is your mindset the same as a teacher? or do you have to kind of change how you present yourself?
1: Oh, no, I I, I would definitely, well, I'm always the same teacher, but I would definitely change depending on the want of the student. You know, obviously if if it's a younger female, I would imagine, well, I always ask them, you know, if it's an individual, say, why are you doing this? What's your interest in martial art? Is it fitness, a bit of meditative aspect to what you want to do? Is it for self-defense? Are you worried about being hauled off and stuck in the back of a van? All of that will dictate what I would teach. You know, for a young lady, I would often say to them, well, look, you're you're probably not going to get into a fist fight with a guy. It's about being grabbed, manhandled, and basically thrown on your back, on your stomach, or dragged away somewhere, or, or whatever other horrible circumstance. So the style of teaching or the techniques or the tools I would give them would be very pertinent to what I believe the greatest want was. If it's a, a, like a law enforcement or whatever, again, you would assess, are we talking about the pre-fight? Before everything kicks off, are we talking in the middle of the fight? Post-fight, what happens after the fight and all the ramifications? Are we involving knives? Are we involving firearms? So there's a whole lot of different uh, sort of skill sets you, you would bring into your teaching. If I'm teaching something like Chuck Norris, is, you know, been have uh, been to for uh, since 1981, been teaching at Chuck's uh, annual convention in Vegas. A lot of those classes are based on reality-based, you know, uh, aspects of martial arts. And for them, not so much. Firearms aren't my thing these days, you know, though I understand the idea of it. But what I teach in more is, how to stand in front somebody in a conversation range, we call it, because it's, you know, in martial arts, as you know, we bow, we step back because that's the etiquette. Well, as you know, that never happens in the street. There's no rules. You know, you're usually confronted with somebody. It starts with a bit of a, what we call a conversation. Yeah, fuck you, yeah, fuck you, and all this sort of stuff. And you're given a particular range that you need to now be able to either defend or launch a preemptive attack from. So I would work a lot on that. Because majority of the fights, and again, one would hope that they're few and far between, but when they do happen, they are in a bar or somebody walking past you in the street or a bit of a shove or whatever. You have to understand the stimulus that starts an altercation and they are varied. And I tend to specialize in that only because that's what I had to do as a bodyguard or a It
0: It's
1: usually about a conversation would then dictate whether something escalated into a physical altercation or you were able to de-escalate and, and separate. So again, it, it just depends. And then finally, if I'm teaching a serious martial artist who's not is not concerned with combat in the street, I, I get a little tired sometimes when all the conversation is, is, oh, will it work in the street? And yes, that's important, but it's not the be all, be all and end all to being a martial artist. There's a lot of wonderful aspects of being a martial artist that have nothing to do with that actual street fight. I mean, you look at doing kata and everything else, it's virtually like meditation. It's control of the body, it's having mind, body, and spirit awareness of all aspects of your body. I think there are wonderful directions you can take a person in martial arts that don't always have to do with uh, with the street, even though, the fact that it's called martial art would predetermine or presuppose that, yes, it does have to have a combat emphasis in some way, shape or form.
0: With that being said, with your experience in training and years in the industry, who are you always, is it easier for you to learn more now or are you kind of just kind of set in your training or how do you kind of, I mean, is there anyone out there right now where you're actively always learning from?
1: Oh man, I, I'm, I'm the old glass hut, you know, I want to, I always want to empty my cup and taste somebody else's tea to use oh. the cliche. Yep. If there's a seminar or something in town, or someone or something interests me, then I'm, I'm there, you know, I've been doing, uh, there's a friend now called Alex Kostic, he's Serbian and our style in Australia brings, uh, Matt Ball, a friend of mine, brings him out a lot to do Sistema seminars. Okay. And I've done a number of those. And I, you know, the amount of stuff I've learned from Alex, because Alex had a, he had a basically a, not karate, but a, you know, kickboxing background, everything. He was very, very good. And then chose to focus on Systema, which always fascinates me. Why, what drew you to something like Systema? And, right. you know, I would do things, thing, and then he's done Systema. It's, it's, it's a very different application of power. It's different. In fact, I said to Alex, you're doing my head in, mate. I said, I, this is so like opposite or contradictory to what I would do with focusing a punch, for instance. You know, they're very loose. It's almost Aikido-like in its application. But when you when you hold a mitt and have Alex kick it or punch it or whatever, the power in the snap is astounding. And so I go, okay, well this is interesting, there's got to be something and some principle you're doing that I can apply to what I already do. And I love that. I'll do seminars where sometimes I'll just get one little thing and I'll be like, ah, that's gold. I can't wait to now play around with that in my martial arts mindset and work out a way to incorporate it. And I'll tell you the reason. First of all, I, I like to think, and I like to advise people, try and find something that you have a passion for that just makes you wanna get up every morning. And for me, it's martial arts. And I, I just, I'm ever, ever looking for some way to change my feeling and my expression of my martial arts, meaning I do not wanna be the same martial artist I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't wanna have a set pattern that doesn't evolve, I, I love the evolution where even though something externally, even if it's a kata or the way a spa might look the same, internally, I'm expressing it in a slightly different way and that hopefully is a result of a Bill Wallace or a Benio Chides or, or whoever else I might get to train with a Pete Cunningham that will influence me in a way to just evolve my martial arts and take it in a different direction. And I might say, and I've often said in 10 years from now, I might be back to where I was 10 years before as a result of that exploratory journey, but it just excites me. You know, I've often said that I, I, and it's a generalization, but I believe most, well, most, that's probably an exaggeration, but I'll say most people They're probably just, as adults, they're living previously learned skills. Meaning as a kid, you might learn to play baseball or whatever it is, or basketball or in Australia, it's football or cricket. You learn to ride a bike. And when you're an adult, you're probably using those previously learned skills. Well, for me, as a martial artist, every day I wake up, I believe I have an opportunity to learn something new. To tax my brain, the neurological pathways, the plasticity of the brain—that—that of that trying to get my head around some new concept or principle that I can then apply in my daily training. That to me is what life is all about, and especially as a martial artist. Again, I don't want to be the same person I was ten years ago. Having said that, physically, of course, with age, you know, you can't be like you were in a forty-year-old. But again, but- do Don't look at what you can't do, what you don't have anymore. Look at what you still have. What can you still do today? And that there's there's a plethora of things that you can bring into your life that will will give you enjoyment. And again, I say again, just makes you want to get up every day, excites you about getting up. I love that.
0: If someone wants to see what you're up to, uh, what training you're going to, seminars, where can they find information about you? Your website?
1: Social media? Yeah, I, there's a website, you know, I used to have a website, but they've gone a little bit out of vogue. I, I, I'm not that techy, but um, I have, you know, there's richardnortonbjj.com. Obviously it's a, it's a jiu-jitsu website because I've been involved in jujitsu for the last 33, four years, started in the late 80s. That's a website that people could message me. And the other way, the easiest way of course, is uh, message me on Facebook. I, you know, I have, a, I have a Richard Norton, I guess it's fan page that somebody set up. And I also have my own um, page, you know, personal page. As you know, Facebook limits you to 5,000 friends. So that's already full. But, but I believe you, anybody could still message me. So if anyone's interested in anything I do, just drop me a message on uh, Facebook, on Facebook Messenger. And I'll gladly uh, correspond with them in the best way I can. Because I... I love teaching seminars. I still do a lot of, again, probably more reality-based, but I had some karate drills that I did to do to develop speed and explosiveness. Um, and, uh, or just strictly Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You know, I was very fortunate to receive a fifth degree from Higa Machado and also fifth degree black belt from the legendary oh. Hicks on Gracie. So uh, I've got some skill sets in a number of areas. I do what I do, mightn't suit everybody, but that's okay, too. You know, all I do when I teach now is give people options. So here's some options. This is what I do. This is what works for me. Even street stuff. I go, this is what works for me. Will it work for you? Who the hell knows? I hope it would. Your job is to take this information, to do it, to to bring it in and actually get off your bum and figure it out make some little changes and hopefully there's some aspects that'll uh, make it effective for you. But, uh, the reason also, I want to say I love teaching is it's, it's like doing a new movie. If I do a new movie, just say we do Mad Max, of course, the general pattern is that they want something different. It means that you, you can get quite fearful, uh, because there's a lot of pressure about coming up with the right techniques and training the actors and having them perform on camera. And that that that's a lot of stress. Likewise, doing a seminar. If I do a seminar at chucks, you know, I had like nearly 300 black bots on the floor last time. Well, that's a big expectation. You know, I always go in my head oh, they're probably wondering if Norton slowed down a little bit or whatever. But I like that aspect of it because you you know, Gus D'Amato, who was Tyson's trainer, he had a saying, I don't know whether it's originally his but I loved when he said fear is a friend of extraordinary people because what fear does is prepare you to do more work, to prepare better, to allay those fears, to come up to scratch and not, you know, and to be able to allay those fears when you get on the floor. And it, so it's a, it's a fantastic motivator for me to have to go and teach seminars because of the expectation that I don't want to sleepwalk my way through it. I don't want to talk the same thing i did last year and the year before i want to keep up to date so again all of that is is for me one of the reasons i still take on seminars because i'm too scared that when i sit on the couch and press that button and watch tv all day that i like it too much
0: <laughs> to working with a bad versus working with say a politician um, a head of state a private high net worth client what kind of differences are there or is your kind of, besides obviously dressing's a little bit different,
1: Has it, what else changes for you? You know, one of the big things when I work with the bands as you would know also that part of part of what worked for, for Bob and I is we would often, it's almost like being a chameleon, we would dress in a way that we almost look like a member of the band. Because a lot right. of the rock and roll of those days didn't want the heavy thing of a big guy standing with their arms folded they didn't like that they didn't think it was a good look for the fans some bands do but a lot of the ones i work with didn't so we very much blended in hence you see me wearing you know tight tight jeans and and it's got even me getting embarrassed looking back but that was part of the gig because In that regard, I I became so close with them because I could go out to dinner, sit at the same table, be at a party or whatever it was without standing out like the proverbial sore thumb. And they very much preferred that, you know, as a user-friendly kind of look for the band. And what people don't realize is that a lot of times you almost end up like um, a babysitter in that you're with so many of the artists so much of the time i used to say it's being like the hairdresser on a movie set where the hairdresser is the one that sort of puts the makeup on the artist in the morning and genuinely they get chatting the hairdresser will often know more about that artist than just about anyone else who will they become like a confidant you know (laughs) and i had the same situation with a lot of the fans hence why i said why i got a lot of work is because they knew they could trust me that i'm not going to. I hate the kiss and tell books where somebody finishes working with somebody that I've got to know quite well and then blurts everything personal about them. I said I would yep. never ever do that because I was in such a, a trusted position. So, so that was the job and also to understand too that the last thing a band would want is for me to punch somebody. Because at the very beginning I realised if I'm with Linda Ronster or James Taylor and then a punching somebody, the report would be James Taylor's body punches a can. It wouldn't be Richard Norton punches somebody. No. So I was very aware of, Yeah, I was very aware of the pre-fight. In other words, it's about how you address somebody, how you sort of reduce their adrenal sort of stress and everything else, and your own, and basically try and get to a situation where you completely avert the idea of physical. You know, violence and everything else, albeit sometimes that was unavoidable due to people on drugs or out of their trees or whatever. But most of the time, it was about that pre fight, which is another conversation we could have. It's, it's all about everything that happens before that first punch is thrown, which is so much often about ego, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's for another time. But they're the differences, you know, as opposed to maybe again, being a soldier or learning military combat where it absolutely is a life and death situation. You know, people are gonna shoot you or you're gonna shoot them. So I just think that's an interesting sort of um, bit. And and my my bit was usually about being with a rock and roll band. So, you know, it, it was a different sort of use of my martial skills, skills in that I had the confidence to know if it kicked off, I was tired, able and and able to handle myself. So would gave me the confidence to push it a little bit further without having to resort to the physicality of an altercation, if that makes sense.
0: So if you were working, so what was different between working with say the Rolling Stones versus John Belushi? Was there a difference in how you're you're debater? Or I mean was Belushi born closer to a rock star than most celebrities have kind of worked with? Or if it was a businessman, I assume it's a little bit different
1: for you. Yeah, it's a little different, but not a lot different. Meaning, you know, what... The great thing about what I used to do is I always got to actually be with and see the real person. What people right. forget is what you see on a stage or on a TV or sat down a live is a persona that the actor or the musician has created. And that's very different from the real person. So in that sense, it's not a lot different. Your job is to understand their personality, kind of what gets them a little riled, what not. How do they react to fans getting too close or not? What's the interreaction like? How confident are they when they're on a stage and whether people can come to the edge of a stage, you know, or whether they would prefer security keep them in the seats all of that comes into your job and again it's it's all about again being aware and the pre and trying to determine the possibility of something going wrong long before it actually happened that's so much of the job so with the John Belushi you know it's it's not a lot different he was he was one of the nicest kind-hearted people I could ever work with you know he's very extravagant in every possible way but, you know, i give him workouts. Sometimes I'd, I'd wake him up when we are staying in a house in Los Angeles and his wife at the time, Judy, was on the phone, and I'd wake him up and, John, John, your wife's on the phone. And he'd pick up the phone and two seconds it'd be like, <laughs> it'd be snoring away and I'm like, oh, well, that, that's our John, you know? But, yep. so, so, again, it's very much personality-based. Like, again, some artists were very paranoid, like David Bowie. David was very paranoid about, People getting too close to him, so you couldn't mention his actual name. A lot of them had, you know, name different names that of course used when checking hotels and everything. But again, it, it just it just depended. James Taylor, I remember when I worked with James in New York. We he had an p- apartment. He used to live on Central Park West, and he would, uh, you know, we I'd go and pick him up where the band would turn up at the Savoy with a, you know, limos and everything. I'd walk past, and we'd come up the footpath, and James would be in his khaki shorts and he'd push bike, and we'd be whilst and Nobody'd have any idea this is James Taylor, you know. That was him. He was so ash, you know, with all of that. But I do want to say, you know, which is an interesting uh, last point about being a bodyguard. People, people ask and wonder, well, why do why do they all need bodyguards? And you know, I had somebody ask me once. Uh, a James Taylor fan said, oh, why does James need you as a bodyguard? We love him. I said, well, I would ask you, why is James, Why is John Lennon dead? In other words, you're not dealing with the average punter. It's that one in a million that has an, a completely out of wacko sort of agenda. That's really what you're there for. Most of the time you're having a good time and enjoying yourself. But your job is to be almost like an Alsatian dog, you know, where it's sort of like this. Somebody moves closer, the eyes open, the ears prick up, you get a little closer, and maybe it's like, All right, you're this. It's kind <laughs> of like that. You're there as a last line of defense. And and you know, I got crank letters for James, for Linda, uh Libby and Newton John when I worked with her for a little bit. It's it's amazing the amount of um, kind of not normal people that have a very different agenda to the average punter. And I keep saying, that's, that's your job. You know, I tell you a really interesting story to finish off. I was sitting in Peter Asher's office in Los Angeles. Peter Asher used to be part of a, a, a duo, Peter and Gordon English group that were almost as big as the Beatles in their time. Peter would manage Linda Rumstead and James Taylor. And I was just given Peter a workout and J- uh, James called, James Taylor, and he's on the phone to Peter. And anyway, I'm sitting there and Peter hangs up and said, oh, that was weird. He said, James said, wow, that just sounded like ga- gunshots. So James at that time was on Central Park West. Yep. The gunshots were John Lennon getting killed. I mean, he Wrong. remembers hearing those gunshots and the same person, you know, um, had come up to James the day before and asked him for an autograph. How scary is that? And it's only that he wasn't on the top of the list, you know, that that he probably didn't cop it. And I go, wow, once again, that's that's kind of why people like that are there to just be there to be that extra line of defense, should that one in a million person approach and be that that person, you know, with that agenda that's taking somebody off the planet. Pretty scary thought, but there you go you know, somebody once said about uh, working with Jackie Chan or, or even like, you know, I worked for a while for John Belushi, you know, the amazing John Belushi when he filmed the Blue Brothers movie before and, you know, got to meet, you know, Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and all all as a part again of being a martial artist in that sense. I was training John and, and also working as his bodyguard. But I look back and you get a bit blasé until you start talking about it and people's eyes go, oh my God, that's part of history. And you go, yeah, you know what, it it's it's been an amazing ride that I'm very, very thankful for. And again, if I can share any of the knowledge I have, and I'm not I'm not presuming or pre-presuming that anything I do is amazing for anybody, but but I believe there's got to be something again if people that They come to my seminars, I always say, just empty your cup and taste my tea. There might be one thing in what I teach that makes you that little bit better. And if that's the case, then it's been worthwhile for the both of us. So um, it's it's been an incredible journey. And I, I also hopefully want to inspire the younger martial artists. You know, I often say that, you know, I started off as a, I grew up in Croydon, which is a suburb of Melbourne, Australia. I was very skinny as a kid, I was asthmatic. And I often say, if an asthmatic, skinny little kid from Croydon can grow up to work with people like Chuck Norris, who's still such a dear friend. I don't know whether you know Chuck Norris was best man at my wedding, by the way. We're, we're dear, dear friends to this day. And I to laugh. I said, I got him as best man just in case somebody started any shit at the wedding. He takes <laughs> care of it. But, you know, that. That sort of lifetime means if I can do it, if a kid from Graden can do it, then basically anybody can do it. What it gets down to is how badly do you want it? How badly, you know, do you want it? And are you willing to put the work in? Because the last thing I'd leave with that is, you know, I I used to say a lot that, and I I advise people that say, oh, thanks to my master, I became this, or thanks to so-and-so. Or I might say, thanks to Chuck, I got started in the movie industry. But I would also advise people don't take yourself out of the equation, meaning that yes, people that influence you may give you a start in some area, but you're not gonna last 40 years or as long as I have without also having the the fortitude and the dedication, the application, the focus to follow through because nobody's gonna hire you just because you're a nice guy or you're a friend. You've gotta have the goods. So again, take power from the fact that you've got longevity through you know introductions but but again don't forget that i, I hate people that forget where they came from like bob Jones got me started in a whole area of my life that would never have been available to me had he not asked me to start and go with him with zendo kai chuck i would never have got into movies because i didn't aspire to get into movies when i went to the states i was merely going as a bodyguard and that started a 40-year career so you know, again, remember and be thankful for those introductions. But again, don't take yourself out of the uh, the equation.
0: That's awesome, Richard. Well, thank you for the time tonight. Uh...
1: You got it, All uh, right, stay well.
0: and at naturalmanpodcast.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle.